Hello, my name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm an assistant director at the Thomistic Institute. Delighted to welcome you back for another installment of Off-Campus Conversations, where we follow up with Thomistic Institute speakers and try to deepen some of the insights, not that their insights aren't deep, but that we have the opportunity here in this forum to uh, kind of chase down those insights or explore them further. So for this episode, I'm very delighted to be joined by Father Thomas Moore Garrett. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Father Gregory. You have no idea how excited I am to finally be invited on one of your programs. You have <laughs> so many podcasts and presentations and books you've written and a presentation in Catholic media. And I think I was among one of the first, one of the first of your Dominican brothers to welcome you to the House of Studies. I was especially excited to get you integrated into our sports program, part of which you were responsible for resurrecting and leading to a long period of excellence. And then when you went off into Catholic media, it was like I was invisible. And now for the first time, for the first time ever, I've been planning on this for years now to be on one of your programs. I'm excited to get started. Let's get into it. Man, tremendous. Okay, so uh, if you hadn't picked up on it, uh, at some point in that disquisition, dear listener, uh, you, you may have noticed that I was being roasted there, So as I so justly deserve, but Father Thomas Moore Garrett here was the athletic director at the House of Studies, which is an exalted position. You might think to yourself, the Dominican House of Studies, how many students do you guys have? 90, 95? And thinking that, you'd be correct. But 90 to 95 of the most middling athletes with the most competitive natures that you have ever met in your entire life. And so Father Thomas More was uh, responsible for wrangling all of that ego and channeling it for the common life and the glory of God, which he did with great aplomb and panache. So Father Thomas More, it's, a, it's an honor for me to have you on the podcast. Let's just say that. Okay. Well, now that we're done slapping one another on the back, um, maybe we can maybe we can actually get started a little bit. Maybe, maybe we could talk about Jesus? Okay, perfect. Well, um, apart from being athletic director at the Dominican House of Studies for a, an auspicious stint, uh, for those who don't know you, would you just say a word about who you are, where you are, what you do? Yeah, um, I'm now serving as um, an associate vice president and associate general counsel at Providence College in Rhode Island, where I also teach as part of our business school faculty. Um, some of your listeners may know that um, we Dominicans founded Providence College in 1917 and have continually served as its religious sponsor. We have about, I think, 48 of us now here active in ministry, um, in teaching and administration, and especially the Catholic chaplaincy. And um, it is one of the places that we've committed a great deal of our resources to in the um, last several decades of our province. Um, prior to obviously to serve in this role, um, at some point I um, acquired a law degree. I, prior to entering religious life, I practiced law um, for several years. Um, most of that was with a large firm. And um, during that time, my concentration focused largely in capital markets. Um, also worked as a congressional aide um, for two years. A friend of mine who's now deceased um, was elected Congress was elected to Congress, and he asked me to join him in his first staff. I worked there for two years and um, entered religious life as sort of a, a second vocation. I was in my 
um, mid-30s when, uh, when I entered religious life. Um, and would you say that the congressional district that you served is among the greatest congressional districts in the United States or simply the greatest? Well, what is now um, Pennsylvania 1 is simply the greatest congressional district um, covering such infamous figures as Father Gregory Pine and his family uh, for several years. Bingo. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, awesome. Okay, well, this conversation is pursuant to a, a lecture that you delivered at New York University as part of the Thomistic Institute kind of presence slash chapter there. Um, New York University is a place that we're all very excited about in the parish there. St. Joseph's, Father Boniface has done great things, Father Isaiah, Father Clement, Father Jonah. Uh, so we're really excited about the Perpetual Adoration Chapel that they just had dedicated, installed. Um, so it's a thing that that a lot of the friars in the province are, are justly uh, animated about. So, um, yeah, you were just there and you delivered a talk uh, or a lecture on moral cooperation. So maybe we could start with just a kind of thumbnail sketch of, of moral cooperation. What does it mean to cooperate? And then we can get into a couple of the distinctions that you drew and then help situate our own pursuits to do the good and avoid the evil um, in, in light of the things that you described. So could you just uh, introduce us to the theme of moral cooperation? Yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> The way I started with this conversation in New York was, um, well, by reference to the atmosphere. Um, this conversation, and for those of you, for those of you listeners who are not familiar with our ministry at NYU and um, St. Joseph's Catholic Church in, in uh, Greenwich Village, it's a um, tremendous gift for us to be able to serve this community and this particular area of the church. Um, those of you in New York should, I would encourage you to try to find time to visit there on 6th Avenue and um, investigate some of its programming. It's a very active church, um, several Dominicans committed to um, spreading the gospel of Christ in many different ways there. I was invited there to talk as part of the Thomistic Institute series for young professionals and this conversation was held in June. Now, some of you who live in urban areas, if you think back to what the environment was like in June in many major cities in the East Coast, and not just the East Coast, but also in the Midwest, um, Chicago in particular, the skies were covered with shades of gray and darkened throughout the early parts of the summer as a result of some of the um, smoke that had floated down from the forest fires in Canada. So when I began this conversation, I referred to the atmosphere outside and um, likened it to the kind of environment that many in the audience probably live and work in, one that is covered by shades of gray. There is oxygen there, you need it, you must breathe it, but there are contaminants associated along with it. And what you want to be able to do is extract from it what is healthy and what is necessary for you without doing too much damage to yourself bodily that the mere act of breathing has in fact harmed you. Something similar like that can take place in the work in the workforce as well. Um, it is increasingly difficult, I think, for folks in either private or public service to avoid morally compromising situations. So whereas merely going outside during those days and breathing exposed you to harm, I think the same is becoming increasingly true 
of many professions that people pursue. And fortunately, I think the church gives us a framework and some tools with which we can work to navigate those circumstances. But there are many thin lines and um, obviously um, delicate and detailed situations to which the framework requires um, particular application. Yeah. Yeah, no, I thought, I mean, you began with that description and then a handful of different examples or um, kind of test cases in which people find themselves to be on the brink of moral compromise without even realizing it necessarily. Uh, you know, certainly in certain cases, uh, they, they do realize it. People do realize it. Um, but to try to help us sort out our, you know, effort, as it were, to remain stainless or without blemish, uh, while pursuing the good, you made distinctions between, you know, like formal and material cooperation or direct and indirect cooperation, and then that which is proximate, uh, and then that which is remote, relying upon St. Thomas Aquinas, double effect theory, some of the distinctions drawn by Alphonsus Liguri. Uh, before maybe touching on some of those particulars, though, I think that when, when people hear these types of moral descriptions, sometimes they're overwhelmed, and they might begin to think, ah, you know, like, perhaps I'm not smart enough to live my moral life. Perhaps I should refer my moral life to an expert, or perhaps I should outsource my moral life to one who is more competent to live it. Can we, yeah, can we try maybe to situate this discussion within the setting of, yeah, like, like, what does it mean for me to be responsible? What does it mean for me to be an agent in this ambiguous moral universe? And like, can I, can I make it out alive? I don't know if that sparks particular lines of inquiry for you. Well, to answer the last question first, I think um, absolutely, although it might not <laughs> always be easy to do so. Um, some of the earlier questions about whether you need to be an expert to navigate this field. Well, practically speaking, I don't think that you'll have the opportunity. Most people won't have the opportunity to be an expert. I think the experts are few. Um, and I think that given scarcity of time, um, it's unreasonable, and I don't think God would expect everyone to be an expert in this particular field, even as it applies to his or her profession. Excuse me, even as, a, as it applies to his or her profession. Um, and while I do think that there are some fields that are probably fraught with more, more instances of moral compromise than others, I think the problem is ubiquitous. So one of the examples I start with is something that I would imagine most of your listeners have familiarity with, and that is um, ride hailing or ride sharing. Imagine being an Uber driver, and this is an example I started with. Imagine being an Uber driver and being asked to pick up um, a handicapped individual, um, someone who is unable to walk and they're in a chair. You have the coordinates of where this individual expects to arrive, but you're not familiar with it. You don't know what is um, at that particular destination. Well, when you arrive, the right thing to do for the driver is to help the passenger into the car. And that's something that the passenger would be, excuse me, the driver would be expected to do. Now you have the passenger in the car. As you get closer to the destination, perhaps it begins to look somewhat suspicious. Maybe the house is um, a house of ill repute a house that's known or reputed to be engaged in prostitution. Some of it could even involve trafficked individuals. Well, at what point are you responsible for the crimes that take place inside that house or that the person, the, the customer that you're carrying is wanting to engage in? How close must you come? 
If you let them off at the drive, if you let them off at the ride and complete the task, are you cooperating in their evil? Well, certainly you are. Are you morally responsible for that cooperation? Maybe not. If you didn't know the destination, if you knew nothing about the person's intention in the car behind you, um, what if you help get them to the door? What if they ask you to remain for a half hour and agree to pay you extra when they return? At what point have you compromised to a degree that you've exposed yourself to sharing in the wrongdoing that's taking place inside? I think there's that's a simpler example to grasp, but my guess is for most professions, there are um, variations of this same theme and activity. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, people have different responses to a description of a moral situation like unto that, um, and, it, and it becomes more pronounced as the moral situation cleaves more closely to their own reality. Um, and I think a lot of people, um, they feel trapped or they feel kind of bamboozled when they find themselves in compromised situations because they haven't thought through it or they haven't anticipated it. Um, and, and part of the, the net effect of that emotional or psychological response is the feeling like you've lost your freedom or that you're bound by it or that it's inescapable because you can't imagine disappointing an individual or embarrassing an individual or extricating yourself in a way that could leave other parties, you know, somehow compromised in turn. So, um, yeah, I think that the, the lecture that you gave is, is just a great way by which to approach the subject in that it informs our freedom or it kind of animates our agency in anticipation of these types of things or from a kind of speculative distance. Um, so, I, I, you know, like one of the things that you describe when it comes to informing your agency is just having a, a cognizance of like what you do and then how what you do touches other things which are which are part of that moral network which are part of that moral universe and so here again a question of of responsibility we're human beings we have limited knowledge we have limited experience we might have limited time and bandwidth to research these types of things um what would your counsel be to a some to someone who might um well maybe we can do both what would your counsel be to someone who who kind of errs on the side of scrupulosity and what would your counsel be to somebody who errs um, on the side of, of negligence? Like how, how do we find our freedom or lay claim to our responsibility in the midst uh, or between those two extremes? Well, I think it's, I, I think first of all, what I want to say is um, obviously one of the first precepts of the natural law is to do good and avoid evil. Um, it's just always a little trickier in figuring out which one of those circumstances you're involved in. So for example, going back to my Uber driver, well, the Uber driver, let's say he has a family and maybe he needs extra money. Maybe one of his sons or daughters is going to college and to supplement that income, he's driving people um, outside of work hours in order to earn the extra income necessary to fund a college education. Well, that's good. I mean, that is good. And that's his intention in driving. So in driving even this particular customer. So is he doing good or doing evil? Well, a little bit of both, um, a little bit of both. St. Thomas, and one of the reasons why I think St. Thomas situated in this talk is we can draw something from the principle of double effect that St. Thomas covers in Secunda Secunda 64, um, Secunda Secunda 64, where he talks about how um, in self-defense, um, one may uh, take action that results in the death of another, um, where the intention is to save one's life, a good. Um, but as a consequence of saving one's life, 
another person dies, which was an, is an evil. St. Thomas himself doesn't um, develop this along the lines of moral cooperation. St. Saint Alphonsus Liguori is a more explicit source of that kind of direction, but certainly St. Thomas, Thomas was aware of the dilemma and his thought is helpful in situating our minds toward the possibility of instances where good and evil are unavoidably intertwined, sometimes unavoidably intertwined. So your question about what advice to someone who errs on the side of scrupulosity. Well, I always think that if you can avoid evil, even if your association with it is rather remote, it should be avoided. So if you're the kind of person whose conscience bothers you about um, even being engaged remotely in activities that associate you in some respect with evil actions, well, I think that's something you should talk to a priest or your spiritual director about. It's hard for me to generalize because I think that depends a little bit on somebody's spiritual path and their own development and a whole host of other factors that we can't get in today, um, at least on in this session. But I think the second person, which is the one I encounter more frequently, um, I can say a little bit more about. Now, the second person is someone who's rather careless. And I'm going to infer something about what you're asking, Father Gregory, but let's just take, for instance, here that the careless person is the one who feels that as long as his or her intention is not aligned with the evil outcome, their involvement is always permissible. Um, I think that's a dangerous trap to be in. Um, and I think that uh, that St. Alphonsus Liguori has particular resources that can be helpful in those circumstances that maybe we'll talk a little bit about. What I would say to that person is to not underestimate your own role in perpetuating evil activity in the world. Um, that while there may be good excuses or proportionate reasons, we should say, for you to continue down this current path, you have to always be mindful that perhaps in these situations, God is especially asking from you um, an exercise of the virtue of courage and that a great deal of spiritual merit is accessible to you as a result of um, accessing the graces that will allow you to pursue a courageous action. Um, that's number one, to never eliminate that possibility that you may need to, for lack of a better term, take a stand. Number two, and um, well, this is advice I universally give in these sort of circumstances. Don't believe, don't make the mistake that merely because your association and evil action is remote and maybe excusable, um, that you're free from its effects. So what I mean by that is, if you find yourself, let's concretize this a little bit by examining our Uber driver. Let's say our Uber driver concludes that, you know, if I would have known what this destination was, and in the future I won't pick up rides that set this as a destination, but the truth is I didn't know what it was. I'm just trying to make money for my daughter here. I'm going to complete this ride and let this guy off. I'm not going to say anything to him. I don't intend to be judgmental. I'm going to complete this and get out of here as soon as possible. You still come close to evil. I don't, I think there's good reason to believe that you have not uh, morally cooperated in his actions, especially formally. Um, 
But I do think that you have come close to furthering an evil activity and some remedy must be pursued in order to exercise your soul away from the evil that you have engaged in. So what would this mean? I think it would mean something like saying a prayer for this particular person, um, especially after you let them off, um, obviously being mindful of the address and avoiding in the future. But my point is, you know, St. Thomas and some of your listeners might be familiar with the um, considerable contributions St. Thomas has made in um, describing habitus. So put simply, we develop um, just like any kind of athletic activity or anything we practice, the more we do of it, the better we're going to become. Um, Father Gregory, until he got older, increasingly became better at basketball. Now he's probably reached, he's probably reached his pinnacle, which put him just short of Father John Baptist Coup for probably the greatest <laughs> Dominican basketball player at the House of Studies at all time, of all time. Um, he fell just short of that. But the point is, just like any kind of activity we become more familiar with, once you become more and more familiar with approaching evil, it gets easier and easier to do. You're less hindered in continuing to pursue it in the future. I think actions have to be done to undo that exercise, a kind of counter-exercise. Maybe think of maybe think of moral cooperation as something like cheating on a diet, all right? So remote material, moral cooperation, material cooperation where you're not formally committed to the evil action itself may be permissible, but you have made your soul more flabby. To undo that flabbiness, some sort of spiritual action needs to be undertaken in order to exercise your soul back to the position that it was before. That's the exercise I would give to someone who's found themselves in a situation where um, at least engaging in material cooperation um, becomes somewhat regular. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a um, just pursuant to your comments there, just a couple of thoughts have come up. Uh, let's see if I can formulate them as questions. One is, okay, so I'm thinking of another type of person. Um, so, so many of us will want to stay in our current work arrangements because the fallout of distancing ourselves from the current employee will be significant, right? We might have to look for another job. We might have to move. It might involve a rearrangement or a realignment of relationships, all of which is just brutal. I mean, not, not unrelated, the, the types of changes that take place when somebody converts, you know, it's, it's similar. It's not just a matter of, do I believe this or do I believe that? It's a matter of who am I and who are the people that I surround myself with? You know, so it's a big, it's a big question. Now you might have somebody who just doesn't feel the effect of that. Somebody who might be more unattached or less implicated in human relationships. And they might simply say like, you know, I'll just kind of commend myself to the mercy of God or commend myself to the providence of God. And then they will back away from the situation then take up another situation. Is there any risk there? So my, my thoughts are, okay, yeah, God is provident. So he orchestrates all things strongly and sweetly unto the praise of his glory. But also we're prudent, which is to say that we have to exercise a modicum of providence in our own lives, according to our own lights and with our own resources. Um, so it strikes me that, that this type of reasoning can actually be a good, like it can actually promote our moral um, engagement with reality. I don't know if that sparks any thoughts for you, if you have further commentary. No, I do. In fact, I feel very strongly about this. I'm glad you raised this. I don't think that this is a simple exercise, that 
we should um, exclude ourselves from certain professions or activities merely because um, merely because of the act, merely because of the current environment that those professions are engaged in. Um, so I wouldn't want to counsel. I don't think it's wise in general, at least, to counsel someone who finds themselves in a difficult situation um, in beginning their profession to conclude that there's no way to continue this particular line of work aside from leaving and becoming a Catholic school teacher or working in a monastery somewhere. I, the, church needs, um, the church needs Catholic investment bankers. The church needs um, Catholic doctors. The church needs Catholic professionals working in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I'm not a proponent of a bunker mentality where we continue to back ourselves into narrower, narrower and narrower um, professions that we can um, comfortably pursue. Um, we have to be engaged in these activities. And I think the church has given us these moral resources to help us navigate them um, and not for us to run away from them. I think if the church had intended for us to run away from them, well, then this sort of analysis would be unnecessary. I think the trick is it's difficult, but, you know, look, what I tell everybody, it doesn't say anywhere in the gospel, I think, that it will be easy. Um, <laughs> that promise isn't made. So should we, should we touch a little bit on the framework itself that many of your listeners might be unfamiliar with? Um, yeah. So let me try to, you know, the language that is used for um, formal and material cooperation, and that's really the subject that we're talking about here. The language that is often used for formal and material cooperation can get a little bit um, dense. Uh, let me try to simplify <laughs> this as best I can. All right, so cooperation involves an instance where somebody's being often unwillingly, or often unwittingly, I should say, um, called into or um, finding themselves cooperating in the immoral activities of another. So back to my Uber driver, it's the customer who wants to pursue um, the immoral activity, not the driver, him or herself. All right. Formal cooperation. Formal cooperation is never licit. It can never be okay. Formal cooperation is where one is not permitting, not, one is not engaging in the immoral action itself. The driver of the Uber car is not him or herself also going into the house of ill repute, but they're pretty comfortable with it. In fact, they're happy to do it. They, involve, they actually see it as something of a service. Good for this person. I'm happy to facilitate this ride. Right? That's formal cooperation because formally, your soul, your mind, you're committed. You're committed and even excited in a sense to seeing through this moral activity. Right? There are no conditions under which formal cooperation is permissible. Material cooperation can be permissible under certain circumstances, but it's important to remember that merely because you can characterize someone's activities as material cooperation does not mean they're morally licit. Doesn't mean they're okay merely because they're material cooperation. It means they might be acceptable under certain circumstances, but they're not by virtue in and of themselves permissible. All right. So how do we know if something is, um, how do we know if, if an act, if it, 
act of material cooperation is permissible and when it's probably morally impermissible. Well, there are some guiding principles that come to us from St. Alphonsus Liguori, the doctor of the church. And St. Alphonsus would, or from his writings, we can identify four of them. All right. So the Cooperators Act must first, the Cooperators Act first must itself be morally good or at least indifferent. Now, there's a very active debate among Thomists over whether there is a human action, a human action that can be indifferent. All right, we'll set that aside for a moment. I actually think there can't be, but maybe that is a topic for another discussion. All right, so the cooperator's action itself must be at least indifferent or morally good. So driving an Uber car legally, following the speed limits, following the rules that apply, well, that in and of itself is at least morally indifferent and probably morally good, all right? Especially if you're driving to earn income to help a son or daughter go to college. All right, so check. Number one, um, the first the first criteria, first criterion would be satisfied. All right, so secondly, um, the cooperators act, the cooperator must not intend the principal actors act. All right, so this means that the Uber driver must not intend to um, facilitate the activity of the um, principal actor, the passenger who wants to pursue the immoral activity. All right, so in my hypothetical, the driver unwittingly picks them up without knowing, with I should say, without knowing what the house is for, only becomes suspicious about it later. Um, and this second factor, it merely just draws the distinction between what would be formal cooperation and what would be material cooperation. The third and fourth, the third and fourth factors are where it gets a little bit more interesting. St. Alphonsus would say that the good effect, the good effect of the cooperator, the good effect of the cooperator driving the Uber car to earn money for the son and daughter's education is not achieved by the bad effect. In other words, the result, the good result that you're interested in is not achieved by the bad effect itself. Now, how do we know when the good effect is achieved by the bad effect? Well, St. Alphonsus's writing gives us some clues. He would ask two questions. Is the cooperator's actions immediate or immediate? And are they proximate or remote? So here, without getting into the technicalities, what St. Alphonsus is asking is, how close is the cooperator to the immoral activity of the principal actor itself? All right, so to use an hackneyed and often used example, let's take a nurse in a hospital who is called to assist directly in, a, in an abortion. Maybe the nurse would prefer not to participate in these activities. Maybe he or she has never been asked to assist with an actual abortion before. But if they're handing instruments to the, to the abortionist, to the physician, him or herself, they're rather close to the activity. All right. One good question to ask is if you decided not to do it, if the cooperator decided to withdraw, would that prevent or cause significant disruption to the execution of the immoral activity itself? If the answer to that is yes, 
well, then the cooperator is probably immediately associated with the immoral activity. Under those circumstances, material cooperation, regardless of one's intention, would not be morally illicit. All right. There needs to be greater distance between the cooperator and the evil action itself. All right, that's the third factor. The second factor asks whether the good effect to achieve to be achieved by the cooperator is proportionate to the bad effect. This is a little tricky because it causes us to engage in a form of consequentialism. And I think that's always dangerous because we as human beings are not the best at assessing the consequences of our actions, especially in the moment. All right. How many times have you seen after eating a full lunch, have you walked into a room, maybe at work, somebody had some extra desserts left over and there's a big slice of chocolate cake sitting there and you're on a diet? Well, in the moment, that chocolate cake is going to look good and you can tell yourself, well, I could probably afford to cheat a little bit here, but it's probably a good idea not to eat it. Or how many times have you bought something that you thought would be incredibly useful to you or a vacation that you saw in a brochure that you thought would really make your summer? And then once you finally invested in it and spent the money and took it and got there, you thought, hmm, this wasn't so great after all. all. right. We human beings are pretty poor. I think if you step back and look at it, at always assessing the consequences of our actions. And that's not even taking into account long and short-term perspective, right? Sometimes looking at the short-term, an activity might seem inadvisable, but over the long-term, it makes much more sense, right? We might not be able to um, project which one of those perspectives is most useful to us in a given circumstance. So I think consequentialism is always a little bit fraught with danger. But St. Alphonsus Liguori asks us to examine whether the good effect is proportionate to the bad effect. Now note that this step of the analysis comes after already assessing whether the cooperator's position in the moral act is immediate or immediate or proximate or remote. All right. So this, this factor is going to have greater significance if you decided there's a good bit of distance between your cooperation with evil action and the good effect that is to be achieved as a result of going forward with the cooperation. So, you know, sometimes I will give the example of, um, well, let's take someone who has a felony record, all right? And um, an individual for various reasons um, who has a record might have difficulty finding employment. Maybe he or she has children to support all right, can they, if the highest paying job available to them is to serve in some kind of janitorial role at a facility that does, that commits or engages in abortions, is it permissible for them to be able to take that employment? Well, are they cooperating in evil? In a remote sense, sure. They're working in a facility, cleaning it up, making it available the next day in some fashion to be able to continue to engage in immoral activities, all right? So they're cooperating in evil, all right? But if it's the best job available to them and those earnings are necessary to support children, which are part of the responsibility of the individuals who's working, is that good effect, the extra income that will be 
um, accessible to those children, proportionate to the very remote association that someone working on a janitorial staff has with the activities of abortion itself, I can see good reasons for someone to conclude that the good effect is proportionate to the bad effect in those kind of circumstances. All right, if one is able to satisfy all of these four factors, um, there are reasons to believe that continuing to cooperate in the immoral activities are, are at that level are morally permissible. But I do wanna caution here that that doesn't necessarily mean that you've created enough, enough distance between your own actions and the evil itself, which is why, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's helpful for someone who finds him or herself in these circumstances to adopt and engage in some spiritual exercise as a means to help keep your soul fit while you endure these trying circumstances. So maybe just to summarize a little bit, I'll mention these four factors just very briefly in, in very um, simplistic terms, recognizing that this is a difficult and um, fact-intensive subject. All right, the cooperator's actions itself must be morally good or at least indifferent, all right? Driving a car, following the, following the, the rules applicable to driving a car would be at least morally good or indifferent. The cooperator, the cooperator must not intend the evil action, right? must not intend what the evil actor him or herself intends. Right? Those first two factors are just plain common sense. If you can't satisfy those, you're engaged in evil activity yourself. It's the third and fourth factor, four, third and fourth factors that are most complicated. The third one being whether the good effect is achieved by the bad effect. And again, this is where your closeness or proximity to the evil action itself must be considered. And whether the good effect that is achieved by continued cooperation is proportionate to the bad effect itself. It's the third and fourth factor, third and fourth factors that are most relevant. I think a lot of uh, moral theologians that I've read even experts, people who might call themselves experts on this subject, which I really would not, um, but there are people out there who would. I think they put a lot of stress on that fourth factor. I think that's a mistake because I think that consequentialism is a dangerous activity. I think the better place to look in assessing your place in cooperation is that third factor. How close am I and how necessary is my execute is my is my activity, are my activities? To the execution of this immoral action. Does that help make sense of it? I've rambled on there quite a bit. But, um, no, that's great. <laughs> this is a complicated topic. It, it is a complicated topic. And it's not one where you can just kind of hand wave and say like, ah, oh, you know, like you can look it up elsewhere because it's super important to rehearse the criteria at every available juncture so that people in hearing it repeatedly have a better sense for the moral realities which are in place and then also the moral dispositions, which we seek to cultivate. So it's better to register those realities and then react to them or, you know, kind of navigate our way through them. Um, and I like, I mean, the, the particular shape of this conversation insofar as we've, we've motivated the question by, you know, you communicated with urgency how this is something that we all find ourselves in the midst of. It's not something that's wholly avoidable or at least not for most human beings in the 21st century in the Western world. 
Um, and yet it's, it's worth engaging in the sense, like not the evils aren't worth engaging, but that the moral reality is worth engaging, even if there are evils that attach to it, because it's a matter of sanctifying the workplace or sanctifying this, this present evil age to use, you know, St. Paul's language. Um, but then we have this criteria and we can rely upon the church's tradition and it's enunciation of this criteria to know that even if we don't have the chops to work through it at every point, like we can't always remember what's two, what's three, what's four, whatever. Um, yet we know that there are these, these reasons in the background that we can kind of repose upon them and seek to appropriate them in the present age. So maybe then just as a final question, I think that, that for a lot of people, um, the last point that you made about distancing ourselves, even from remote material cooperation, never getting too comfortable or complacent with our degree of involvedness, um, is going to be a really important one. And it strikes me that like a good approach to it would be thinking of ways where we can, um, cultivate a kind of fidelity or a kind of constancy, even a kind of, um, creativity in our moral lives, because I think a lot of us suffer from lack of creativity. It's like, are you going to say, yes, I have Jews in my basement, or no, I don't have Jews in my basement? Or like, oh, no, I only have two options. It's like, you don't have only two options. You have a variety of options. You just haven't thought of them yet. Um, so what are some, yeah, maybe maybe final words on a pastoral note whereby people can cultivate this type of fidelity, constancy, even creativity towards which we've been gesturing? Yeah, I think a couple of things. One, oftentimes in the workplace, there might be a whole host of activities that you're comfortable and well not even comfortable excited with pursuing and then your supervisor especially for someone who's junior and here i'm thinking of maybe somebody in the financial services industry maybe working for an investment bank who's been i don't know helping environmentally responsible businesses raise capital to introduce forms of clean energy and then um, is given a project with um, I don't know, moral compromising um, features associated with it. Maybe something in the pharmaceutical industry is easy to draw from. Well, there you might say to your supervisor that, look, I've been um, cultivating a niche in a particular area. I think I'm developing some expertise. I um, might not be the best person who's suited to pursue this particular project. Maybe you could consider giving it to someone else. I don't know that it's necessarily wise to immediately go in and say, this is wrong and you shouldn't do it. And look, there may be circumstances, especially at, at a more uh, mature level of one's career where I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but for someone who's relatively new and trying to acquire the skills and develop a reputation, there might be a way to um, avoid becoming entangled in these situations without necessarily having to compromise your continued future in this profession. I think that can be an admirable decision. I think that the spirit can lead us to live to fight another day. I think that some of us will need to do that. Um, so there may be circumstances where you can um, negotiate a reasonable solution that allows you to avoid the circumstance entirely. Sometimes that might not be possible, or sometimes you might have to take it a step further, in which case you might need to have a conversation with um, your supervisor or whomever it is, a client giving you the project and say, listen, I, I think that this has been a great relationship and I've certainly profited as a result of um, being engaged with you. I've learned a lot from you. I have an incredible amount of respect for you. Um, 
And I think you share some degree of that respect for me. And for that reason, I, I want you to take seriously what I'm about to tell you. Um, you know, I'm more than a producer in the marketplace, or more than a producer and a consumer in the marketplace. It's important to me that I um, maintain fidelity to what I believe to be most important in life. And I would expect the same from you. And in this circumstance, I hope you can understand that this is not something I can be engaged in. That might be, um, as one former president referred to, as a teachable moment. I think God can take a lot from that and do good with it. And um, we can't be sure that the consequences of that conversation will be the worst case scenario. They could be the best, even more than we can possibly imagine. And I think those are probably two pieces of advice that I would have, especially for someone junior in his or her career to get started with. Yeah. And, and it brings us back to the commendation that you gave of courage that is going to require courage. Courage, you know, is a mean between rashness and cowardice because one might be rash or tempted to a certain rashness whereby he's ready to die on every mountain, you know, just can't wait for the opportunity to die on a mountain, but that doesn't serve the army too terribly well. And on the other extreme, you might have somebody who's always retreating from a potential deathscape only to discover that the patrimony no longer exists because the enemies have circled it about and raised it to the ground. So we need to find, yeah, the battles to fight and the particular causes to engage most urgently and most, you know, virtuously. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's always going to be tough, but you've certainly supplied us with many principles and, you know, clear examples and images to, to help concretize that in our own case. So thanks. thanks and that's a much. good exegesis on something you started out with earlier uh, from the gospel of Luke, that our Lord counsels us to be wise as serpent, as simple as, and as simple as doves. Um, so your analogy there to the battlefield, I think fits that line appropriately. Boom. All right. So yeah, thanks again. And then turning to you, the listener, thanks for tuning into this episode of Off Campus Conversations. Um, so we look forward to chatting with you every two weeks on a variety of themes for yeah, the glory of God and the salvation of all our, all our souls. And so if you haven't yet subscribed to the Thomistic Institute podcast, whether on YouTube or on your podcast app, and then know of our prayers for you, please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you on the next Off Campus Conversations. Cheers. <laughs>